You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Heckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Sven Martin, and he is Managing Director of the U.S. for CoMatch. We're going to learn a little bit more about the industry. We're going to learn a little bit more about Sven and what he's doing in helping CoMatch come into the United States. CoMatch is a talent network focused on high-end management consultants and industry experts. Fascinating space, this whole kind of gig economy and finding fractional and and, uh, outsourced resources, obviously, is huge. I think some statistics that I heard recently were, I guess, 2020, over half of all employees will be some type of freelance type of basis. So definitely a, a space we're moving into in the business world and certainly in services, a big factor in where this industry is going to go. So I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. Comatch has got a really interesting angle, been very successful in Europe. And now moving to the US, we're going to learn a little bit about their strategy, what they've learned, and some of the things they're learning about the space. With that, Sven, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your background, and then we can talk about CoMatch uh, and learn what that's about and, and what you're doing. But let's learn about Sven a little bit. How did you get in the space? What was your professional history? Professionally, I joined McKinsey after after undergrad, where I focused mostly on clean tech, technology, innovation, and was there sort of throughout that whole ride of, of building out what was at the beginning, the climate change special initiative as mm-hmm. it grew to a massive global practice. So so most of my time was spent with clients that had developed some technology. We're looking at acquiring some sort of smaller, innovative startup or another technology, another uh, business model. And they were trying to figure out, you know, what do you do with this? How do you scale it? How do you take it from lab or a small initiative to actually building a business out of it? Mm-hmm. Spend, I, I don't even know. I'd, I'd have to check my list, you know, seven, eight years there or something like that. It's and, all a blur. <laughs> and then at some point, some point I moved on and started working with, with a number of startups in an advisory capacity. And we founded a telemedicine startup. And over time, as you know, we all meet each other twice or we have, have weird connections. Yep. I started getting, getting connected to Comatch where... Jan and Christoph, the two co-founders, both ex-McKinsey, so we had some overlapping professional history. We'd, we'd worked in the same office at some point. Mm-hmm. And Dirk, our chief sales officer, I knew through a mutual friend who's actually on our platform. So there were multiple connections and you start talking and over time, because I had lived in the US for just a really long time, mm-hmm. even though I have a, a German background, we started talking about the US market and, and, and how how the business would translate into North America and, and things got more concrete. When I moved on after after the telemedicine startup, we relatively quickly connected and said, hey, 
while this wasn't, you know, planned years ahead, yeah. uh, we think it's a good opportunity. And also I was available right then and it, yeah, fortuitous. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. most of all that the personalities just fit and we said, you know what, let's, uh, let's give this a try. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about co-match cause I, I, I get the general idea or I think the audience, you know, understands the, the general idea of kind of a talent network and, a, you know, being able to access, you know, folks on a fractional or part-time basis as needed, but give us kind of the history background of co-match and the strategy. Cause I think it is, it's kind of a different or, or a, you know, a unique talent pool and then how you typically engage, who typically hires you. Give us some details there. Yeah. If you think about gig economy and, and accessing talent quickly in the first few years, a lot of solutions have basically focused on much more fungible talent. And by that, I mean something that was very easy to create as a pool around a certain set of standards. Right? Think of an Uber driver, mm-hmm. or even if it's not talent, think of Airbnb. There's a set of guidelines you can have that say, here's what qualifies you to be on this platform, right? And here's what the customer needs. The customer needs a ride, the customer needs accommodation. And that's how you scaled up quickly. Mm-hmm. Once you started thinking about much more complex skill sets, it becomes more difficult because now the question is, how do you even vet for quality, right? Yeah. And and when you think of talent accessed by corporations or consulting firms, private equity funds, those are usually people that have either really deep expertise in something or have a skill set that translates very well. So it's not you know necessarily a one-on-one, okay, this person has a driver's license and a good criminal record, and now they can be on the platform. So that space hasn't been, uh, I mean, of course, it's been been tapped, but it hasn't been as developed as other parts of, of the gig economy. And when you think of freelancers, uh, so in our case, it's management consultants with top tier backgrounds, and it's industry experts. Mm-hmm. You find yourself in a situation, traditionally, if you, for whatever reason, don't want to, cannot work with, let's say, a larger consulting firm, because there are multiple instances where you have a project that just necessitates, let's say, one person, right, running the program management office or something like that, or you might not have the budget. There are myriad reasons why you might need a little bit more of a flexible setup. Mm -hmm. And you look to freelancers. The issue is, one, how do I even find them? Yeah, exactly. And two, once I found them, how do I even make sure that they're good? And not just how do I do it, but also how do I do it without spending three months vetting resumes and calling people mm-hmm. and testing them out, right? And then lastly, if I found them and they're and they're good, have I made sure that they're actually the right person for the job, right? Just because Bruce worked for a consulting firm does not mean he can do anything and everything a consultant could do. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's where we come in and we basically cut that process short. What we're doing is that we're building a, a talent pool. Now it's worldwide. We started in Germany, then Europe, now the US, mm-hmm. um, where we pull folks that come out of the big consulting firms, the leading boutiques, and straight out of industry. So those are people with 10 plus years of experience in a very specific topic, not just job experience, but here's what I stand for. And I have very, very deep expertise in it. We vet them to ensure a minimum quality standard so that at that point you have a talent pool 
where you know, okay, everybody here meets a minimum bar. And from there, we flipped some of the traditional marketplace dynamics around a little bit, where if you think of a marketplace, you oftentimes have a situation where all customers can browse all the talent and all the talent can browse all of the project. Yeah, it's, you're just, it's like an open marketplace. You're just, it's up to you to sort of search and filter and you know, ask questions. There's no curation, right. really. And that really solves for you know, the, the first issue. How do you find them? Right? Yeah. Of course, huge access, that's great. But then yeah. the question becomes, how do I make sure that they're good without spending too much time? Yeah. And for the talent, oftentimes it's, so if I'm very good, how do I make sure that the client, because they struggle to, let's say, weed through hundreds of people, yeah. doesn't just focus on price? Yeah. If you come in and you have 20 years of very senior industry experience and there are 30 others pitching or 100 or be it 10, as long as there's no curation, mm -hmm. you oftentimes get stuck in a situation where your direct competitor is someone, let's say, half a year out of school, right, pitching yeah. for a few hundred dollars a day. And then the first question you're faced with is, right, by the client, yeah. it's, well, this person goes for a few hundred bucks a day, you go for a few thousand, why? Yeah. And the discussion goes down the price channel. Yeah. This is where we keep much tighter control of the process. And it plays into quality control right, directly and indirectly as well. So when a client comes to us and posts a, a project, we connect them with someone on the team who works out the details, makes sure that we get very granular on the requirements. And we then take those requirements and we filter that pool of, at this point, a little bit over 10,000 consultants and industry experts worldwide to, let's say, you know, five to 15, depending on the, the project, yeah. people who, who really, really fit the bill. Yeah. I mean, it seems it seems like there's two just kind of hearing how you describe the the process there are two big operational sort of key operational activities that I see and I'm just kind of curious on how you've actually you know developed them or what you've learned around them one one is the I'll call it the sort of talent acquisition and vetting side so you know given the vast pool of you know even high level very experienced x you know, top tier management consulting folks, how you pull in the people that really are going to, you know, not only have the skill sets that are in demand, but also are, you know, the type of people that work well in this kind of gig economy. I just, I find that you, you can have someone who's incredibly experienced, incredibly knowledgeable, but if they're not, you know, fluid in the, in, in working in this kind of freelance basis, you know, being a good consultant in this model, you know, can ultimately not deliver the value you need. So there's this whole kind of, how do you vet the people, not only for skill set, but for kind of the ability to work in this model. And then two is that whole matchmaking process. Like how do you kind of diagnose what a customer or what a client really needs and how much, you know, how much are you kind of taking it at face value? How much do you really need to probe with a customer to understand, you know, what they're really looking to do and maybe actually consult with them on the types of people they need, how many people they need, at what level, what skill sets, and doing that matchmaking. I'm, I'm just curious how you've kind of evolved those two things because for me that's, I mean, certainly the second one is really different. I mean, I think most of the platforms that I've seen out there are basically open marketplaces and it's up to the users to kind of do the best they can and to find people. So the matchmaking is really is really curious. But talk to me about those two areas and, and how you've developed that. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I'll start with the with the vetting, sure. which then translates to the matchmaking, and then we we'll circle back to yeah. uh, acquisition and finding finding the right kind of people. So when we when we go through the vetting, which is you know a, a CV background check, but then also an interview that goes very very deep into a candidate's expertise, we try to not only vet the background in terms of, you know, have you done what you say you've done, but also to classify talent in a very granular way. And that goes straight to your point of how do you find the right kind of person. To start, we we really only, I mean, say for, you know, the very occasional exception, but, but 99% of the pool, we only work with truly independent talent. So someone who, you know, let's say is employed somewhere full time and then does this on the side doesn't really work for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It avoids interest conflicts. It avoids all kinds of capacity constraints. We just we just go straight for truly independent individuals, not for folks who actually have a, you know, quote unquote day job and then mm-hmm. do something on the side. So that, that clears out, you know, a lot of issues already. But then this initial interview and the classification really goes at where do you shine? What do you do? Do you usually work as part of a team? Do you lead the teams? Are you usually engaged as a standalone expert and, you know, maybe on a retainer where you give input once in a while? Or is this something where you're hands on on the team, just working on the implementation? And really trying to get to what kind of individual is this? We've, um, you know, not that long ago, but but at this point, you know, not that long ago, but then in, in, in startup world ages ago, we started classifying for soft skills as well oh, to understand are those folks who come in usually in very contentious situations and work on turnarounds or are those uh, folks who are you know very good at stakeholder management we have someone in the pool who 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 really focuses on connecting creative leadership and uh very sticky situations trying to (laughs) trying to turn around companies that are that are led by uh led by creatives and 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 the values all you know in in the creative talent but then sometimes the the business behind it needs a little bit of work so you know that that person for example is a great example where um, if you know what that person is about, you can really match them to the right kind of client. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you kind of have these gems and it's like, you know, figuring out that that perfect kind of connected fit, that curation. I'm curious how you mentioned the soft skills. Have you, uh, what's your take? I mean, I guess what have you used or what have you looked at in terms of some of these assessments and, you know, whether they be kind of personality or the more psychological assessment stuff. Anything that you found interesting, not interesting? Have you looked at them? You know, full disclosure there, I think in terms of, Letting it influence the way we we classify, I, yeah. I'd be hard pressed to say here's a winner, right? Yeah. Anyone in the consulting world is familiar with the MBTI yep. and with derivatives thereof, mm-hmm. right? And and that makes sense as a starting point, oftentimes, right? Because because the talent is familiar with it, it's it's something easy to talk about, right? Hey, what's your what's your MBTI? And you've done the test probably and let's take that as a starting yeah. point to talk about um, yeah. talk about soft skills. But we we're currently not working with sort of a rigid outside system to say yeah. this is what we what we use to to solve for uh, for soft skills. Yeah. What does help though is client feedback, honestly. You can talk about soft skills all you want. 
at the end of the day, it's the client who gives you the kind of yeah. feedback that is really important, right? At the end of an engagement, you start learning a lot about uh, folks as well. Yeah, no, I could see that. I always, I always said that the, the the only thing that interviewing really tells you is how well somebody can interview. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't necessarily tell you how well they can do the job. So yeah, right. that feedback process seems important. Right, and and you know, I mean, talk talk where I'm in between the two and uh, I can't help myself but think that that's because there's a innate difference between what really drives your behavior and what's learned behavior over time in yeah. your professional setting. But it does come out in the actual work. And that's where feedback is super important for us. Yeah, yeah. So that's the um, kind of the vetting process. Um, and then so the matching process, you mentioned that you you take your, you know, 10,000 plus candidates, you know, and for a given assignment, get this down to five to 15, something like that. What is what does that process look like? Is this a super smart algorithm AI component that you've you've developed? Is it, uh, you know, a bunch of people really thinking hard in a conference room with uh, little profile photos moving around on a, on a whiteboard? How do you do this? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the, the vast majority of it is printed resumes and boxes. Yeah. <laughs> now, what we've done is we've we've created a platform algorithm based at the beginning uh-huh. where we can just get very granular and move the right kind of variables into the algorithm. Right. So, so this is where depending on the project descriptions and this is why we we have that conversation with the client as well. Yeah. We can get very granular to filter out the right kind of people that then gets combined with with the actual teams who work on the same types of projects and industries and functions over and over and over so they can influence the end result at times where someone gets picked up by the system who shouldn't, right? Or for some reason, someone who would be perfect for a project doesn't get picked up. And and, and that's where that personal relationship with the consultants and with the clients becomes just invaluable because yeah. we can we can move the right kind of people in. Because as you imagine, depending on the project, their skill sets were just very nicely transferable into a new setting and it's not a literal filtering out of you know you check box at one two three and therefore you're in yeah and then as a last layer over the last couple years we've been training a machine learning engine to start aiding us in you know at the beginning of course the most simple kind of filtering and to then learn and get more and more accurate in suggesting the right kind of talent for the for the project at hand mm-hmm. that's that's currently of course or, or you know probably always will be in de- in further development yep. right yep. but even when we're when we do anything manual manual we we try to run it in parallel to compare results and say hey this part it might not be ready yet but let's see how it does while we do something either manual or just through, you know, the, the straightforward algorithm to see what results we would have come up with. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm, I'm always curious about this this kind of um, kind of talent matching and and team design. You know, where I'm I'm putting you know multiple people onto an assignment. What are their skill sets, but also what is the sort of the the personality, interpersonal skill dynamics going to be? You know, client dynamics and yeah, just imagine that there's. You know, as you've kind of put people on teams, you're getting feedback, you're learning about what's working, what's not. 
that some some of these algorithms or this machine learning stuff could could start generating some interesting insights or at least start giving you possibilities you know th- things to consider in terms of you know matches that you might not otherwise either think of or just have mental access to like if you once you get so many people on the platform it's going to be tough to you know kind of keep all those possible people in your mind well a, a machine learning can start giving you suggestions that may not be top of mind but actually may, may be really good really good matches just because you hadn't thought of it or it's not they're not immediately at your fingertips from a data and, point of view and you, you you mentioned a crucial point here the relevance of teams with yeah. the proverbial push of a button <laughs> and yeah. as cheesy as that uh, expression is this is going to become more and more and more important it's already very important for a lot of organizations but it's only going to gain significance as Organizations themselves just need to react much quicker. They don't just draw in individuals from the outside, but they also have to think about how do I quickly reorganize my own people and match them with outside talent? How do I quickly staff a complete external team? Because there's a topic here that we need to react to. Mm -hmm. We don't have experience. We don't have the right kind of people, but it's not a one person kind of job. It's a it's a team effort how do yeah. i very quickly get the five six experts to match with you know two or three folks who can run the project and support you know the analytics and how, how do i quickly staff something in the realm of two to six or, or more yeah. even people right mm-hmm. and then quickly ramp it down and if you take that one step further you can absolutely see entire departments, right, being, yeah, exactly. being staffed up for, you know, maybe not a week or two, right, but maybe half a year or three quarters or something like that. And then ramp down again while the people then go back to, quote unquote, their regular jobs, but yeah. the task is done. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of the shift in the whole economy or the whole kind of the talent sphere here where, you know, it used to be you'd, you'd hire someone, you'd spend six months, 12 months kind of training them, sharpening their skills, you know, getting them really kind of culturally aligned with the organization, you know, and then you'd have several years of recouping that investment with the returns that you have of productivity and things like that. And we're just, we're shifting to this, you know, hey, we're, we're bringing people in for months at a time around an initiative and then disbanding the team, you know, to work on other things. And that, that whole kind of investment stuff is, it's just changing. And I think that the skills around there are going to be huge. Like if, if you actually have that insight and that learning, that data, it's going to be really powerful. And I'd say it goes further than just shifting towards you know, quickly staffing something up and then and then dissolving it. I would say the two models are merging where if you think about recruiting, and I'm sure you've gone through, uh, you know, hiring yourself where you said, mm, that didn't work out so well. But just it's maybe awesome. once or twice. <laughs> right. Like It takes a lot of time. It costs a lot of money, especially for for uncertain situations where something, you know, we have something where you need to react quickly, whether that's a startup or a larger organization just needing to deal with a quick shift. There's no better tool to recruit than to work with each other. And that goes for both yeah. sides. Yeah, exactly. So if I bring in someone from the outside first for a project as a as an organization, I can assess whether that's the right kind of person to work with us, skill sets, mindset, cultural fit. And as an individual, I can do the exact same, right? I would argue as an individual, hiring is, is even more tricky. Yeah. Getting hired and then and then making the right choice because the employer sees, let's say, I don't know, 100, 500, 1,000 kind of applicants for a specific role mm-hmm. and, and starts gathering data. 
the applicant might just apply to that one role yeah. <laughs> and then talk to five people and go, yeah, I'm going to make my decision based on this. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. As an employer, employer, you can kind of hire a couple of people and then decide who you want to keep as an employee. You can't, you can't go to work for a couple of different companies and then decide who you're going to stay with. Exactly. And, yeah. and the ramifications are much bigger, right? Yeah. Now, if you let go or leave that job because it's not working out, this is your livelihood and you yeah. now need to find something yeah. else. So the stakes are much higher. And I think for both sides, uh, a model like this really helps to you know, sniff each other out and see if you fit. Yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, so all of this it has been sort of developed or matured to some extent in in Germany and Europe. You're now working on bringing this to the U.S. I mean, I, I guess I'm curious what you're noticing, and, and I think for the audience here, this it's just a great case study in, in sort of reverse for a lot of companies in the U.S. that are looking to go abroad. But I think a great case study in terms of what you run into, what you need to be aware of, what might surprise you in terms of you know taking an established model or established business and bringing it to another culture, another geography, another economy. What are some of the things you've learned as you've you've looked at the U.S. market? How have you approached it? Uh, what's been your kind of strategy and what have you kind of had to change in terms of the business to make it successful here? Yeah, I think there are a number of things that we've that we've learned that are, that are quite interesting. I mean, nothing if you think about it, right, nothing on paper is that groundbreaking. So I'm not going to uh, tell you that I've you know, discovered a new species of <laughs> person. And, yeah, you know, exactly. White paper here. Yeah. But it's as it is so many times, it's the things that you have in mind that are common sense. The learning then is how important it really was or is, how hard it really was or is. And for us, it's a number of things. It starts with the, starts with the sales process. In, in Germany, in Europe, selling works a little differently, especially if you think about cold selling. So the networking, right? The, what industry associations are you part of? Do you leverage your alumni networks, be that companies you've worked for or schools you've gone to or, or, or you know, EO, YPO, those kind of organizations? Do you, do you make connections that way? That is pretty transferable across geographies, I would say. But when it comes to a cold outreach, it's completely different. I mean, if you if you reach out to, let's say, executives in in Germany or in Europe and you have something solid, solid product to sell and the and the facts to back it up, you can with, you know, with the right kind of email <laughs> or the right kind of phone call or right, generate meetings and, and, and generate sales. And, and a big part of that is because that market isn't yet overrun with, <laughs> yeah. uh, with, with, with cold outreaches, right? Here, I mean, I'll give you an example. When we, when we sell in, in, in Europe, um, it's a few outreaches, but it's the right kind of people and it's very targeted. Whereas here, the frequency just needs to be much, 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 much higher, right? I mean, we, we all know how low email conversion rates are, right? Even if you do it all, all right. And in addition to frequency, it needs to be a true omni-channel approach in the U.S. I mean, and, and for U.S. audience, right? I am not telling anyone anything groundbreaking here that if you, if you want to target someone, especially cold, you email them. You, you might call depending on, on the person and the organization. Uh, you combine that with the right kind of performance marketing, LinkedIn ads, uh, going to conferences, putting up your own events, yeah. generating your own content, right? But doing it all together and doing it very, very well coordinated is, is absolute standard, I would say, yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. Whereas Europe, 
was um, much more about who do you approach and do you get to them? And then it just takes that that right message, right? And the learning for us coming to the U.S. was while we knew there were there were cultural differences, and I had worked in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I've been on and off in this country since '99. We knew instinctively that there would be a shift. We didn't know how pronounced it would be, yeah. and how much we actually had to just really refine every single part of it. And it drives home that, that you know, age old message of there's, there's no silver bullet, right? It's <laughs> yeah, exactly. it out. But there's, there's a little bit of a silver lining in it, right? Where once you really realize that, you eliminate the frustration of silver bullet isn't working, right? Yep. You gain yep. a whole new frustration of this is really, really hard work. Yeah. But the silver lining is if I just do it, I can get there. Yeah. Um, well, it, it makes it, I mean, the other thing is like once you figure out that's a competitive advantage, right? It just, it does create a barrier to entry for everyone else because if they haven't figured this out yet, it means they're not going to be effective. Like it, it actually gives you, gives you an uh, organizational leg up on folks. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's a different barrier or, you know, barrier slash way to success here. And, and there was a second learning, which was the customer group in Europe. Selling, let's say in our case, selling a, a value proposition of, hey, 10,000 people, we can do anything for everyone, right? We have all this talent here, whatever you need, it's there. Here are the stats. 14% of the pool are in this industry and 16% are in this industry. That works really, really well, whereas the U.S. is or North America for that matter, is much, much more expertise driven. And it's much more inch wide, mile deep. Let's just really, really get into a few spikes. Mm-hmm. You know, let's identify where we are good and where the market picks up. And that takes a little bit of a little bit of trial and error, because in a situation of a marketplace like ours, you need to not only find out what are clients buying and where are the clients, what are the what are the industries and what type of clients in those industries, but it's also where are we building the right kind of expertise, right? Yeah. If, if I find out that there are a number of clients looking for a specific expertise in, in, in a very, very narrow subsegment of an industry, but also the reason why everybody's turning to the outside is because there are five experts worldwide who do mm-hmm. this. Right? That's probably not where we can and should play. Yeah. And, and, and that is something that was pretty big for us or, or is pretty big for us because you start in one market and you start to realize, hey, this product works, right? And it works a certain way. Then you go into another market and you start realizing the the basis of this works really well, and the mechanism, and, and, and you know, in our case, the, the tech platform, mm-hmm. all of that's transferable. But we need to fundamentally rethink our customer base yeah. and how we sell to them. Right. That once you go very deep and very expertise driven, it's a very different sell yeah, exactly. than it is for for a market where generalists of, let's say, you know, a just a top tier consulting background, for example, work really well versus a market where the premium is, well, you know, the top tier background is is 
taken as a given and the premium now is what specific super deep expertise you have you can imagine that that's a completely different conversation to have with uh, with the customer base yeah no exactly yeah, it's just fascinating I mean I think this whole kind of um, you know shift in the nature of work and kind of the the rise of this gig economy and uh, I think what you're doing with kind of the, the high end of this or the management consulting end of this is you know it's really it's fascinating I think it's going to be the area that really gets developed over the years and you know personally and having worked in the consulting space for a long time and and see this kind of play out. I think it's a it's a fascinating business model. If people want to find out more about you, about Comatch, what's the best way to get that information? Best way is likely our website, comatch.com, C O match com or finding us on LinkedIn and of course just you know, dropping me a quick email is is uh, is probably the easiest way I don't know if you can put that in the description of the sure. of the podcast um, I will I'll will, will put that in the show notes so people can get to the website and contact you Sven this has been a pleasure I, I love sort of this sort of talent and technology and uh, business models uh, so it's been a fun conversation I'm curious to see how how the business plays out and, and best of luck with uh, with the U.S. Uh, North America expansion. I'm curious to see how things uh, go for you in the coming months and quarters. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having me. And of course, as you uh, as you build out your media empire, <laughs> um, if you if you do need the occasional consultant or expert Absolutely. in this space, Absolutely. Uh, you can hit me up anytime. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Bruce. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.